Chapter Thirty Five of the Scalp Hunters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenneth Sargent Gagan. The Scalp Hunters by Thomas Maine Reed. Chapter Thirty Five: The Mountain of Gold. After so fatiguing a march, it was necessary to make a longer halt than usual. We stayed by the Arroya all that day and the following night, but the hunters longed to drink from the Preto itself, and the next morning we drew our pickets and rode in the directions of that river. By noon we were upon its banks. A singular stream it was, running through a region of bleak, barren, and desolate mountains, through these the stream had forged its way by numerous canyons and rushed along a channel at most places inaccessible. It was a black and gloomy river. Where were its sands of gold? After riding for some distance along its banks, we halted at a point where its bed could be reached. The hunters, disregarding all else, clambered eagerly over the steep bluffs and descended to the water. They hardly stayed to drink. They crawled through narrow interstices between detached masses of rock that had fallen from above. They lifted the mud in their hands and washed it in their cups. They hammered the quartz rock with their tomahawks and pounded it between great stones. Not a particle of the precious metal could be found. They must either have struck the river too high up, or else the Eldorado lay still further to the north. Wet, weary, angry, uttering oaths and expressions of disappointment, they obeyed the signal to march forward. We rode up the stream, halting for the night at another place where the water was accessible to our animals. Here the hunters again searched for gold and again found it not. Mutinous murmurs were now spoken aloud. The gold country lay below them. They had no doubt of it. The chief took them by the sand collars on purpose to disappoint them. He knew this would prevent delay. He cared not for them. His own ends were all he wanted to accomplish. They might go back as poor as they had come, for aught he cared. They would never have such a good chance again. Such were their mutterings, embellished with many an oath. Sanguine either heard not or did not heed them. He was one of those characters who could patiently bear it until a proper cue for action may offer itself. He was fiery by nature, like all Creoles, but time and trials had tempered him to that calmness and coolness that befitted the leader of such a band. When aroused to action, he became what is styled in Western phraseology as a dangerous man, and the scalp hunters knew it. He heeded not their murmurings. Long before daybreak, we were once more in our saddles and moving forward, still up the Preto. We had observed fires at a distance during the night, and we knew that we were at the villages of the Club Apache. We wished to pass their country without being seen, and it was our intention, when daylight appeared, to catch her among the rocks until the following night. As dawn advanced, we halted in a concealed ravine, while several of us climbed the hill to reconnoiter. We could see the smoke rising over the distant villages, but we had passed them in the darkness, and instead of remaining in the cache, we continued on through a wide plain covered with sage and cactus plants. 
Mountains towered up on every side of us as we advanced. They rose directly from the plains, exhibiting the fantastic shapes which was characterized them in this region. Their stupendous precipice overlooking the bleak, barren tables frowning upon them in the sublime silence. The plains themselves ran into very bases of these cliffs. Water had surely washed them. The plateau had once been the bed of an ancient ocean. I remember Sanguine's theory of the inland seas. Shortly after sunrise, the trail we were following led us to an Indian crossing. Here we forded the stream with the intention of leaving it and heading eastward. We halted our horses in the water, permitting them to drink freely. Some of the hunters, moving ahead of the rest, had climbed the high banks. We were attracted by their unusual exclamations on looking upward. We perceived several of them standing on the top of a hill and pointing to the north in earnest and excited manner. Could it be Indians? What is it? shouted Sanguine as we pushed forward. A cold mountain, a cold mountain, was the reply. We spurred our horses hurriedly up the hill. On reaching its top, a strange sight met our gaze. Away to the north, as far as the eye could see, an object glistened in the sun. It was a mountain, and along its sides, from base to summit, the rocks glittered with the bright semblance of gold. A thousand jets danced in the sunbeams, dazzling the eye as it looked upon them. Was it a mountain of gold? The men were in a frenzy of delight. This was the mountain so often discussed over the bivouac fires. Who of them had not heard of it? Whether credulous or not, there it was before them, in all its burning splendor. I turned to look at Sanguine. His brow was bent. There was expression of anxiety on his countenance. He understood the illusion. So did the Maricopa. So did Richter. I knew it, too. At a glance, I had recognized the sparkling scales of the Salentite. Sanguine saw that there was a difficulty before us. The dazzling hallucination lay far out of our course, but it was evident that neither commands nor persuasions would be heeded now. The men were resolved upon reaching it. Some of them had already turned their horses' heads and were moving in that direction. Sanguine ordered them back. A stormy altercation ensued. In short, a mutiny. In vain, Sanguine urged the necessity of our hastening forward to the town in vain. He represented the danger we were in of being overtaken by Tacoma's party, who by this time were upon our trail. In vain, the cocoa chief, the doctor, and myself assured our uneducated companions, but what they saw was the glancing surface of a worthless rock. Men were obstinate. The sight, operating upon their long-cherished hopes, had intoxicated them. They had lost all reason. They were mad. Oh, then, cried Sanguine, making a desperate effort to restrain his passion. On, madmen, and satisfy yourselves. Our lives may answer for your folly. And so saying, he turned his horse and headed him for the shining beacon. The men rode after, uttering loud and joyful exclamations. By end of a long day's ride, we reached the base of the mountain. The hunters leaped from their horses and clambered up the glittering rocks. They reached them. They broke them with their tomahawks and pistol butts and cleft them with their knives. 
they tore off the plates of mica and glassy selenite, then flung them at their feet, abashed and mortified, and, one after another, came back to the plain with looks of disappointment and chagrin. Not one of them said a word, as they climbed into their saddles and rode sullenly after the chief. We had lost a day by this bootless journey, but our consolation lay in the belief that our Indian pursuers, following upon our trail, would make the same detour. Of course, now lay to the southwest, but finding a spring not far from the foot of the mountain, we remained by it for the night. After another day's march in a southeasterly course, we recognized the profiles of the mountains. We were nearing the great town of the Navajos. That night we encamped on the running water, a branch of the Preto that headed to the eastward. A vast chasm between the two cliffs marked the course of the stream above us. The guide pointed into the gap, and as we rode forward to our halting place, What is it, Ruby? inquired Sanguine. Hey, see that gully ahead of us? Yes, what of it? The town's there. End of chapter 35 Recording by Kenneth Sergeant Gagan.